Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Philip Hamm. Philip is a business storytelling coach and keynote speaker. Today, we're obviously going to be talking about storytelling, but we're going to be talking about different types of stories. We're going to talk about something called constructive embarrassment. And I'm sure Philip will share a couple of stories of his own there where um, he was developing his courage muscle. And we're going to look at how you can use stories in different contexts, short connection stories, success stories, the right and wrong use of them founder stories and how you should use them and for the majority of people why they're not at all relevant they're good for feeding the ego of the people telling them but most of your audience has already switched off differentiation stories in crowded competitive markets how do you stand out even if uh, the market is quite unoccupied with competition how do you stand out in such a way that you differentiate from the status quo who for 60% of the time is the, the winner of almost every sales pursuit. How do you develop customer hero stories that are powerful and effective and your listener can associate themselves with? Industry stories and resistance stories we'll touch on as well. Philip, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Excited to be here. Wonderful. Would you mind telling everybody about 90 seconds to two minutes, a little bit about your history and how you got to end up doing this for a living. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. So before that, I used to work a bunch of years in the corporate world. So working as a consultant at Bain and working at Uber as a product manager. And about two and a half years ago, Uber fired 30% of their workforce due to COVID. And I was impacted as well. And so my first reaction in that was like, oh man, got to find something new right immediately. So I went on and looked for all these other jobs, very comparable jobs, and to immediately find another job. I got one offer very quickly after that. But when I looked at the offer, I thought, Philip, really? Is this what you want to do for the rest of your life, right? It's not that I was unhappy, but I was just not fulfilled. I was just going through life not really living it, like being happy. So I thought, hey, you know what? Let me try out something completely different. And so I just did over the summer, a bunch of, of course, on acting, improv, stand-up comedy, all these different things. And some of the storytelling really stuck with me. And after I did another five storytelling courses, I noticed that a lot of the storytelling courses that are out there, they are not that business relevant or not sales relevant. They focus on very big storytelling, hero type of hero journey type of storytelling. So not really relevant for one or two minute sales pitch. And then I thought, hey, I can probably do that better. And so I just sat down, read another 30 books on storytelling, interviewed, I think, 71 industry leaders on sales storytelling. And yeah, then just started my business. <laughs> okay, so let, let's start with um, a fundamental framework of what makes an effective story generally. Uh, and then we'll go into the specific types of story. Mm -hmm. Sure. Let's start with one acronym that you can remember, SURF. Surf. So S surprising. Surprising is there should be some some unexpected twist, something that makes us pay attention. First one, surprising. E emotional. Emotional. Is there anything that touches your listeners emotionally? Do they care about it? Right? Is there something that touches their heart? E emotional. R relatable. Is it a relatable story? If you tell right now a story about you almost dying climbing Mount Everest, well, do you think this is really relatable? Probably not that much, right? So pick an experience, a challenge that is relatable. Visual. Visual is can your listeners, can they see it in front of their eyes? When they right now listen to your story, can they see it happening in front of their eyes so that they are actually part of your story? That's visual. And then last one is e-edited. Now, edited, it just means that instead of going on or talking for five minutes, getting lost in all these different tangents, do you go from point A to point B as effectively as possible? And any single thing that you say in your story, does it actually serve a purpose? So that's edited. So total surf, that's usually what makes a great story. I suffer from the edited bug. So what tips can you give to a degenerate 
and uh, inveterate interrupter and um, someone who's always thinking ahead instead of being calm uh, and listening quietly. What tips can you give and what clues can you point to that would be indications that maybe someone like me is falling into the trap of not editing? And as a result, what will we see reflected back in our audience or hear reflected back in our audience when we are switching them off? Mm -hmm. Got it. So when it comes to editing, your goal should be to have the story, let's say, one to two minutes long. And if you record it before and you already see, man, I'm going on for like five minutes. Well, you know, okay, there's something, something is not edited. Now, what are the areas that usually people go a little bit too long on? First one, they give way too much context, right? They go like into oh, this is how the production process works. And they give us all the background on all the different people that are working on this project. You can, the context, like setting some, setting the scene, giving context, that's super short. Two or three sentences, boom, you're done. Then you go to the challenge. So cut the context as much as possible. That's one tip. And the second tip is eliminate side characters. I know we are often, we're like, oh, I want to be inclusive of this friend. I want to mention also the cab driver that drove me there and the conversation I had with him. Well, no, pretty much think of, is this side character right now essential, essential to the story? If not, just eliminate them. By eliminating the side character, you will already, it will be easier to follow and it will be, you will save some time in the story as well. Okay, so let's then uh, talk about the intent of the storyteller mm -hmm. as uh, before they tell the story. Because I think many stories fall foul because of where the storyteller is in terms of their intent. And I'd be very curious mm -hmm. how you can make sure your stories land well because they're authentic, they're timely, they're relevant. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about intent, what do you mean there? Let's say the objective of the story or? Yeah, well, the, 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 uh, the objective behind the story. So what's my agenda? Mm -hmm. Is my agenda to elevate? Is it to empower? Is it to help someone see their world through a different lens? Or is it to score a point to uh, rub my ego? Because I think very often it's the latter. Yeah, it's very true. I'd say it depends very much on the story type, which intent you have. Say a connection story is about building rapport. A success story is more about pitching your product. So it depends on the story type. But I would say across every single story type that you see there, the intent is really to connect to the other person. So anytime that I tell a story, I almost try to see, hey, how can I have right now? How can I make the next one or two minutes as pleasant for the other person as possible so that they actually also forget a little bit their daily struggles and have here, here just something fun as well, right? That they see, see maybe different perspective around some things that they usually don't think about. I, I wish I could remember who said it. It was only yesterday. But um, uh, what they said was that every sale is a good deed and every sale is made up of hundreds or thousands of little good deeds. And it's a wonderful way of looking at things. You speak to people like Charlie Green, who wrote Trusted Advisor, Trust-Based Selling. He talks about the critical importance of intimacy. In his equation, trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy over mm -hmm. self-orientation. Now, mm -hmm. storytelling is a wonderfully powerful tool for building trust, but the key to that equation is the intimacy operator. Because uh, without intimacy, you don't really differentiate. Everyone in a vendor buyer situation should be credible. That means you can do what you say you can do. Reliable means you bloody well do it. Those are table stakes. No one would expect that to be anything other than the minimum expectation. Mm -hmm. But the intimacy piece, that requires them to be vulnerable. So that's where I see some real potency in the power of stories. So talk to me about that. How can we create real intimacy, authentic intimacy with another human being? 
Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because vulnerability is absolutely key in storytelling, especially when these are your own stories. So how can you do that? You can share something. When you share a challenge where you maybe fucked something up, right, where you did a mistake, but actually you owned up at that at the end. Um, Anything that shows you as a little bit more of a human that is not the superhuman that has no flaws at all makes you more relatable. So I'd say just be open to share something that maybe others wouldn't share because they only talk about all the great things that they do in life. So one of my mentors and someone I uh, am deeply grateful for is Mark Goulston. He made a point to me, which again is really important, which is be interested, not interesting. And the problem with that is it requires you to be ready to wait that low self-orientation. This quote came from a former CEO of Goldman Sachs before they turned really bad. Uh, He made a point of saying that we are long-term selfish. That's Mm -hmm. low self-orientation. It doesn't mean zero uh, self-orientation. It means that you can wait. You're ready to let others get their needs met first, and then get your needs met in turn, because there's that power of reciprocity. So Mm -hmm. again, I think It's interesting because in storytelling and story listening, I'm very curious about the reciprocal uh, relationship between listener and teller and how interaction can be encouraged or can be a distraction. Mm -hmm. Got it, yeah. What I often say in my workshops, that actually the objective of storytelling is not you telling the story, but it's often that the other person feels comfortable sharing their story. If you are a buyer and I just ask you some deep questions where I want you to share stories, well, you'd be overwhelmed and you probably wouldn't share anything because we're too early in the relationship. But if I tell you something, a fun story by myself where I messed something up, you'll be like, oh, you know what? Two months ago, something, the same thing happened to me. So it is about making the other person feel comfortable. So actually, storytelling, you should see that almost more of a preparation that the other person uh, will tell you a story in return. So actually, it's about the ultimate preparation to becoming then an even better listener after that. So I think it was Laura Janusik who said this. Anyway, Laura, um, I'm going to attribute the quote to you, which is, uh, listening is the transfer of emotion. Now, that's really powerful because a story should transfer that emotional moment, that experience, so that people can transport themselves into that moment. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most powerful things in storytelling. I t- often talk to my clients about doing a- an invisible presentation. And an, an invisible presentation is one where you say, uh, Philip, let's pretend for a second that it's six months from now. We're looking back to today, to this conversation. But what needs to have changed materially? in your life and in your results for you to say oh thank god the best decision i ever made was working with you (laughs) and you future pace them you bring them back to the moment and then they tell their story as if it's already happened Mm -hmm. such a wondrous experience yeah that's powerful that's really the secret then to storytelling is how can you make the buyer see and tell their own story The one thing I'm going to challenge you on is make, the verb. I'm becoming more picky about the language that we use, not the swearing, sadly. The challenge, I think, is that sometimes sales feels like something that we do to somebody. And the tendency in our language is to be about trying to control and manipulate and score a point or do a move. So. I'm doing my best, and it's still really hard because old habits die hard, to work out how you can partner with people and cooperate with them so that they feel confident. They feel confident that if they go with you, not only will they accomplish what they intended, but it will be in line with their values. It will be a challenge, but people don't fear change. What they fear is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So again, I think one of the really powerful ways we can use stories 
is to give people confidence that the decision they are about to make is going to be one that is not going to backfire. So I think another really important type of story, and I'm curious what where you would categorize it, is where something went wrong and you had your customers back, you covered their ass. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you mean something went wrong on your side or something went wrong on the customer side? Either. Doesn't make any difference. I think we need to be, we need, we need our customers to know that we're ready to take a bullet for them if they've earned that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. a partnership. It's reciprocal. Mm-hmm. These are the perfect stories that just shows why it is so crucial to work with you or how you're different, right? Because let's say if you went to your customer right now and you said, we always own our mistakes or we value the customer, we put the customer first, whatever it is, these blank statements. Well, if you just say them like that, they're completely meaningless. Anyone can say them. Worse, worse what that does is creates doubt in the buyer's mind. The last thing you need to do is be adding to their uncertainty at this stage. Exactly. And so when in these moments, when you then tell a story and you don't even have to say, ah, we value the customer or we put the customer first. You can just tell a story that is so implicit, but so explicit in the message that the customer, the buyers crystal clear after that, man, you're really the best choice that I could go with for that. You really love the customer. Very interesting. Well, again, internally, it's important to have the uh, the capability of uh, telling stories in this way as well, because uh, how often are senior management and leadership or individual salespeople having to generate support from people who have the discretion to give it or not? You know, all of these require you to have good stories in your arsenal. Because we can all think for ourselves, let's say if if we have a certain entrenched belief, someone comes to us and says, look, this is the truth. You should follow my truth. These are the arguments. Well, we still say, I don't, I don't care, right? I have my beliefs. I won't switch them. And that's pretty much us humans, right? And so you want to use their stories because there you're not pushing on your opinion. You just say, hey, look, here's an interesting example that could help you see that point. And then let the other person make that decision themselves, but you're not pushing your opinion. You're just sharing something that they can take, whatever they want to do with that. Right. Do you have a framework for choreographing a sequence of stories along the buyer's journey in order to, because I think what most people in sales uh, foolishly uh, don't realize, because they keep beating their head against the wall. And it normally takes an SDR about seven or eight years to work out that talking about the product probably isn't the best way of doing things. And it's just (laughs) um, that you happen to trip over one of the 3% who's in the market to buy. So if you understand your buyer's journey and you understand the struggling moments along the buyer's journey, then chances are most buyers will go through those kind of issues at some point in their journey. All of those stories can be planned and prepared for and choreographed. And you can then start to create a sequence of stories so that as you peel away the layers of their belief, each one of those stories just moves them forward one step. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Do you have a framework for this? Yep. So I try to have, let's say, for each of these crucial moments within the buyer relationship, one story ready that could take the relationship to the next level. Let's say the first one, if we were to see is connection story. And that's very much on, hey, you're hopping on this call. You're going to this meeting with this person. This other person, the buyer, doesn't know you and maybe doesn't trust you, right? Or maybe doesn't even want to spend any time with you. So you have this initial moment. How do you use it? How do you use a short story to immediately signal trust to immediately bring your relationship on to the next level. Now, here's what most people do. What most people do is, let's say, you ask me in the morning, you're like, hey, Philip, how are you? I say, good, how are you? Uh, yeah, really good. Well, the weather today is pretty, sh- yeah, not that great, but that's obviously right, it's January. We go into this extremely unrelevant, boring, boring small talk, but that's 99% of the people, right? 
not your listeners, right? They're super smart, but 99% of the people, they just go into this extremely unmemorable small talk. And though there's nothing wrong with that, it's a missed opportunity. So what you want to do instead in these moments is share a tiny, tiny story about yourself. A tiny story that shows something about yourself, that reveals a little bit the human side behind it. Should I give you an example? Yeah, I'm good, but I've got a head cold. Head cold? No, a a short story is I'm good. I've got a bit of a head cold, but I'm, I'm fine. Okay, yeah. I think you can go a little bit further so that you think actually the other person remembers that maybe a day, a week later. Example, let's say if you ask me now, uh, how are you, Philip? I could say something something like, you know what, really good. This morning I went to my favorite coffee place, right? When I got my card to pay for my muffin, the owner, the Joey, he said like, a good Philip, this one is on the house. I looked at him, really, why? Anyway, he made my day that day. Marcus, when was the last time that someone was, I don't know, nice to you for pretty much no reason? And how was that for you? 1972. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get it. You okay, got it. very interesting. On this one now, you can you may just rethink, ah, Philip, this, this one, I don't like this example. Well, hey, maybe you don't like this example. Pick something else, right? Pick a smaller example. You can say something like, I read this incredible book and it changed my life, right? Or, hey, I ordered at Uber Eats at this one Lebanese place for now the past 10 days and I'm freaking loving it, right? Whatever it is, anything that shows a little bit more personality. Now, and humanity. Humanity, yeah. The one thing, though, that is the hardest is the question at the end. How do you bring it back to the other person that they have a story in return? If now, in the previous example, I just asked you, Marcus, so how are you? I get a pretty bad example. I I probably wouldn't get a story in return. But if I ask you, hey, Marcus, what about you? When was the last time that someone was nice to you for no reason? Well, I probably get a story in return. Oh, when was the last time, let's say, that you um, messed something up at work? Whatever it is, right? So I ask for specific moments in time. I ask for the when and where to get a story in return. It's really interesting. In fairness, to respond to your question, last night was when I had, uh, there were about uh, nine or 10 people who willingly volunteered their time to help me out on something. And it's lovely. That's awesome, right? And then we could already have a conversation, right? I could ask a little bit more. Hey, so what happened last night, right? What was going on? Who helped you out? Why was that so special to you? So we would then have a really cool conversation already. It's really interesting because um, stories can be gateways into a real connection and a conversation with somebody far faster than trying to explain a position and definitely faster than pitching. So again, I'm very curious, um, how do you use short stories in social media, for example, when you're trying to reach out to people? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't, I don't use them that much on social media. I don't use them that much on social media. Yes, I try to have, let's say, one, one statement at the beginning that just shows that I care about their profile, right? Hey, I just say, hey, Marcus, I just checked out your last podcast and man, you crushed it with this one observation. I would then reference whatever you did but that's it. I feel I'm a little skeptical sometimes when it comes to written stories, just because I think people don't read it that much, right? And they're just the most powerful when communicated orally. Written stories, nah, not a massive, massive fan. If you want to include something in your post, that's different. But I'd say in the email or social media messages, I don't find them particularly effective. And what about the use of video or audio messages? and a short story uh, rather than um, a pitch. That could be very powerful if it's very short, right? If it's a tiny one and you just say, hey, this really cool thing happened to you and it reminded me of you, I think this could be very powerful. Interesting. Okay, well, m- maybe when we have you back, we can explore some of that. I think that as homework. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's some homework and uh, we, we've just identified a brand new market for you. <laughs> Talk to me then about success stories. Let's talk about the wrong use, first of all. Let's start with intent and ego. Okay. (laughs) The intent should be to give your buyer 
to give the buyer the feeling that you can solve their problems. And I know you are very careful about the language. So I'm trying to right now not mess up anything here. It's very <laughs> To, to gauge more or less that, hey, whether you are the right person to solve their problems. Because if I shared right now with you a success story that is not relevant for you, well, I wouldn't be the right one to address it, right? So you want to gauge with that success story, hey, are you actually the right fit to help them out on this problem? So if you're trying to gauge where you are, presumably then in the buyer's mind, there's a scale. One strategy I've seen used incredibly powerfully. And it was taught to me by a brilliant friend of mine, Simon Bowen, uh, who runs a company called Models Method. And he creates incredibly elegant visual models to explain very sophisticated and complex challenges and solutions. And what he does is he creates a bell curve. And uh, there's a scale of one to 10. And one to three these people are in red, they're drifting, and you describe what drifting looks like. And then you have either uh, red, um, amber, green, or you've got intermediate levels, so you're drifting to a different level. But yeah, one to three is red, then uh, you've got amber is four to six, then you've got blue, which is uh, seven to eight, and then you've got green, which is nine to 10, and you want to be in the green zone. And what you do is in each one of those sections, you describe what it's like to be in that zone for the customer to then describe whether or not that's familiar to them. Because when you reach that level, they've now started to create a position on that scale. So if they're positioning themselves as a four, for example, then the next smart question is, what would it take to get to a five? Don't go for a 10, but then have them tell their story in the future what needs to happen. And you don't have to sell. The trick of selling is don't sell. I like this. Yeah. You take one story at a time just to move one step up the ladder. It's not that you share this one life-changing story and you're thinking like, hey, give me all my, got all your money. No, no, no. You move one step at a time. And also that's different meetings. It's not 10 stories in one, in one meeting. Exactly. And then you take those stories and you tell them in different contexts. Because again, uh, uh, one of my clients, Paul Nansen, has been running a very competitive printing business in the Midlands. And for must be nearly 25 years, I think now, maybe longer. And when he started working with me, um, he came, he, I remember it was just, uh, the uh, 6th of January, I was driving back from my parents in Manchester and uh, he called me up and we spoke for about an hour. And then two days later, he turned up and he was in London at my training. And what was fascinating was how he turned this business around. And he went from something like 12% gross profit to 32% net in under a year. Now, this is selling print to retailers who are the toughest negotiators on the planet. Now, his story can be spun in over a dozen ways because you've got the turnaround story. You have the rapid growth story. You have the hero's journey because it's been peaks and troughs and it's been expansion and it's been dealing with employees. And then the most powerful one was how he um, used what I taught him to teach his daughter how to neutralize the effects of a bully and have the bully leave the school without ever once raising a finger or even her voice. Mm -hmm. Got it. Can I chip in on your story right now to give uh, some unsolicited feedback? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, because I think this is very relevant as well to all your listeners. It was a beautiful success story that you told there. And I think there's one tweak that you and all your, the listeners right now can make to make a success story a more effective one. So powerful stories, they always bring us into the visual moments of the story. My favorite technique to do that in a success story is by sharing some dialogue. What did the customer say in a 
crucial moment of the story. And so in your story, there are probably two, two crucial moments. One, when your customer approaches you, has a problem, that's one. And the second one is at the end when the customer is happy. And so in both of these moments, it's perfect to bring in some dialogue. What did that person say in this specific moment? So let's say in the challenge, he comes to you and he says, Marcus, I'm really struggling right now. I don't know, this entire thing is not working out. Whatever it is, right? That's the first one. And the second one is at the end. You, you talked about all the stats, all the transformation that achieved. It's much more powerful to just say, well, two years later, that guy called me and said, wow, Marcus, honestly, thank you so much. I just increased my revenue by 30%. This is life-changing, right? This is the dialogue at the end. So it's a tiny tweak. It doesn't take a big but it makes us come into the, the moment of the story. So just dialogue, very easy, but makes a massive difference to how your story will be perceived. That's really, really useful. Thank you. I'm definitely using that. And I've got that dialogue because the, the conversation I had with Paul was his father had been his largest client uh, working for the local council. They'd fired them and he'd lost over 40% of his revenue overnight. He had a bunch of staff who he had to pay so he had to sell and his two partners uh, whenever he spoke to them about it refused to get involved in the sales because they were technicians so it was all down to him and he felt that massive weight of responsibility within a year he'd acquired the factory next door and tripled his floor space and uh, acquired this massive printer now what he was really pleased about was that allowed him to break into a bunch of new clients 14 years later, despite most of uh, his competitors locally going bankrupt, he's still around and constantly being approached to, uh, for people to buy his business. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's powerful. You know, this is, this is perfect, right? This is the stuff that you want to include there. The only thing that I'd suggest as well is focus on less, but more on, let's say, very decisive statements. If he comes to you and says, Marcus, I'm fucked, right? I got to close my business in two months if I don't change anything. Maybe one more sentence sets it. You don't want to go on and on. Rather keep it concise, but boom, powerful dialogue. Understood. A good tip is wear a rubber band. And if you go on for any longer than about 10 seconds, flick it on your wrist. Every time you do it, it needs to be two inches longer each time. So after a while, it will snap after about two, uh, and then put two rubber bands on what they snap around 18 inches, typically, and you'll remember that and you're not going to interrupt. So I probably need some <laughs> rubber bands. That's a good one. I'll get some rubber bands. <laughs> a friend of mine told me that that's what they do in AA. So uh, it seems to work. Yeah, that's probably the best school how to learn something. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I'm really curious about founders, I know we were talking about success stories, wrong use, go into some more detail about that and then really give us uh, a couple of examples of uh, from your own world uh, where you've got powerful success stories and where the customer is the hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good segue, customers the hero, right? That's probably one of the first wrong uses is, hey, we are all, we like to be the center of the universe. We're always thinking, oh, we're the coolest, greatest, and this is my story, and I will tell it in the most bravo manner. Well, your customer is the hero. You are not the protagonist. You are the guide that helps your customer. So make them the protagonist of the story. Another second wrong use of stories is what we see there. If you go on any company's website, they have case studies. And they have tons and tons of case studies, which no person on earth would ever read through and will be equally unmemorable. Now, why are they so unmemorable? It's because they they don't focus on people, but on companies. I, as a human, I care about people. If you tell me right now how you lost your job doing X, Y, Z, I care about that. If you tell me about company Y going bankrupt, I don't give a damn, right? I don't care. It's a company that I don't have an emotional connection with. So the wrong use is using these case studies as your stories. A better way is to talk about specific people having a specific problem and overcoming that problem. 
Now, I know a lot of times people are like, oh man, I don't, uh, yeah, we help this company. Well, then pick the head of purchasing for company XYZ that had a problem and that you help overcome that problem. So always make it about specific people. And then the last, I would say, wrong use of stories is if it's not relevant. Now that comes back to what you said before, Marcus. It's about listening, right? Um, you can only share these success stories once you're crystal, crystal clear on what pain point does that buyer have? Who is that buyer? What do they want? Once you're very, very clear on that, you can share a success story. If you're not clear on that, it could be that you share something that is not relevant and that can actually backfire. Because I'd say sharing an unrelevant story is worse than sharing no story at all. So be very clear on is right now your story that you're sharing, is it adding value to the customer? Okay, so thinking about great success stories, can you give us a couple of examples from your world? Sure. Yeah, I can give you one of my example, one of, uh, let's say, an external example, right? Let's say one, one of my example is, in December 2021, I was in my apartment in Amsterdam when I got a call from this unknown number. And usually, I ignore this type of things because I'm still introverted deep down. This time, I pick it up. Hello? Hi, this is Julia. I was in one of your storytelling programs a couple of months back. And uh, she said that she was sorry to call. She should have called before. But anyway, she goes and says, Philip, guess what just happened? My manager just walked up to me and asked me if I was bribing our clients. I'm like, Driving our clients. What do you mean? Hope you didn't come for any legal advice here, right? And she explained, well, obviously she wasn't bribing anyone, but she was just closing so much. Last year, she had one of the worst closing rates across the entire floor. This year, she exceeded her quota by 73%. It was crazy. Now, I said, wow, that's super cool, right, Julia? I'm curious what changed. And she told me that well, Philip, the one thing that I changed is I committed to one story every single meeting, not more, just one tiny, tiny story every single meeting. And I did that now for a few months. I actually was, I would say, most of the times consistent. But being that consistent, I saw the change in my relationships with my buyers. Now, that just as one example of a success story, right, that I tell once in a while, just to show what it means to be part of my workshops or that what matters in the workshop, that's consistency, right? So that's a story that I would tell once in a while. Should I give an example of more of an external story? Yes, please, as well. Okay. One story that I like, because we talked before about these blank statements with, ah, we've always put the customer first, right? And so what would be an example of a story that could back that up? My example comes from uh, this author, John DeJulius, and uh, from Ritz-Carlton. Ritz-Carlton Hotels, we all know, right? And so the story that they and he shares once in a while is, uh, I'm going to try to do justice and share that story. So a couple of years back, he was staying at one of the Ritz-Carltons in Florida. On that day, he was running completely behind. He goes into his room, he packs his bag, he stuffs everything inside, and then rushes to the airport. At the airport, he opens his bag, looks inside, realizes, ah, shoot, forgot my charger in the hotel. But he thought, ah, I'm just going to call them tomorrow to send it to me. Next day, miles and miles away from Florida, he goes into his office. In his office, there's a package waiting for him. Opens the package. Inside, two chargers and a note. Dear Mr. DeJulius, we noticed that you left something very valuable to you. Now, for that not to happen again, we included a second charger so that it doesn't happen again. Yours sincerely, Ritz-Carlton, Florida. (laughs) He just stood there, right? Mind. (laughs) That's what it means to put the customer first. Now, if Ritz-Carlton just goes out there and says, ah, we always put the customer first, well, that's meaningless. But... If they share that story, well, that backs it up, right? Fantastic example. And again, this is where I think we've got to start learning the customer's stories. I don't know if this is something that you do, but jobs to be done interviews and really trying to understand the customer's buying journey by going through a process of mapping out the pathway that they go through and the different steps that they're likely to touch. So if we were thinking about 
something along the lines of training or coaching, having them talk about the context and uh, what they've been trying to do to improve themselves and when they realized that they needed some help and then defining the job so that they can describe the problem that they're trying to achieve. And then when did they recognize that problem could be solved through coaching or training or whatever? And then what other alternatives did they consider? And as you do this, you start building an understanding of the thought process and the experiences and the context that they've gone through so that you can start tracking progress and their results and their future expectations. I'm very curious in terms of how you would advise marketing departments and product teams to start developing those customer interviews uh, in order to create the raw material for fantastically powerful stories. Good question. Let me, let me think about that. I'd say the first thing that I want to start with, don't ever ask people about their story. It gives them anxiety, right? If you ask me right now, so Philip, what's your life story? I'm a business storytelling coach and it would give me anxiety. I'd be like, oh, fuck, what do I choose, right? And other people that don't know anything about storytelling, they're completely overwhelmed. So never ask about anyone's story. What can you do instead? Let's say if, if you're interviewing right now a customer, a customer, you can ask them, hey, so uh, Marcus, before, before you met me, right? You, I know we, we talked about this, but remind me, what, what was, the, let's say, the big problems that we, you were going through before you met me, before we worked together? What was really on your mind back then? And then you ask, so um, how did actually our product help you, right? Did, did it solve, address these problems? What impact did it have? And then lastly is um, about what's, what was the result at the end, right? How is your life now different in any, if it's in, in any way? If also, if, if it's not different, it's good feedback for us as well. And how do you feel today about the future? So it's about asking their problems in the past, then asking about how their life changed working with you, if at all. And then what is the result at the end? What is the outcome of uh, working with you in the future? Very interesting. Okay. So it's all the rage at the moment, and I'm certainly finding it very, very useful. Chat GPT, in order to help people to better refine their stories and to communicate them in a manner that their audience is most likely to respond well to, what advice would you give to people? Because they are going to play with this. What advice would you give to people? on using it well in order to frame the questions to give you the kind of stories and answers that you want. So your question is how to use ChatGPT to craft powerful stories, right? Or Yeah, so you, you might have content that you, you got your stories. How can you use uh, ChatGPT or uh, equivalent to help you frame your story in such a way that someone who is fast-paced, big picture and not big on detail, will respond well, and then to adapt it to someone who is very detailed and people-orientated. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I like this. And by the way, I use ChatGPT for everything that I write, but I use it more as inspiration. So I say, hey, look, this is right now the, the story. How would you rewrite it to make it, I don't know, more funny, to make it more emotional, to do the X, Y, Z? And then... Um, put the prompt in a few times, have 50 different results. And out of the 50 results, I'm like, oh man, this is cool, right? This is an awesome way right now to add some humor in there. And so I use ChatGPT for my stories to, to just bring out a certain angle of that. When I feel like, hey, this is missing on humor. This is missing on emotions. This is maybe too long. I ask ChatGPT, hey, how can you, how would you refine that? That's how, right now how I use it. But probably by the time we stream it, it has completely different capabilities, so it can just create this entire amazing <laughs> story by, by itself, and we're useless. <laughs> well, it, it's really interesting, because I think that there's a lot of fear in the profession that we're going to be replaced by AI. But uh, I was chatting to Julia Nemchinsky, and she said, uh, made a really valid point, which is that you're not going to be uh, replaced by AI. You're going to be replaced by a salesperson working in partnership with AI. What it does in terms of improving your capability and the technology stacks that are out there, if you buy the right ones and you implement and use them well, 
I know organizations that are today capable of doing 42 times the workload per day mm-hmm. over an average SDR. Mm-hmm. Because the tech stack. Now, you then add this layer of automation and uh, AI. I'm really excited about what this means for the profession if you mm-hmm. use it well. Because, I mean, just think about how it can save on research. You can do competitor analysis. I, I've been doing that this morning. And I've been looking at what, what is it that the top 10 sales experts in the world are remarked on by their customers? And uh, what are the top three uh, things that their customers say are most valuable to them? And then you start peeling all of that. And now what you started to do is competitor analysis. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful. So what were the top three that they value the most? They said that... Increased sales, increased confidence and motivation, and streamlined sales processes, mm-hmm. which kind of not surprising. In fairness, those may be the outcomes, but that's not the real value. But that's the stuff that captures people's attention. Those are byproducts. They're not where the, uh, the rubber meets the road and the important stuff, but it's what will capture people's attention. And at this stage, that story that I'm trying to craft has to capture people's attention because I may be fantastically good at what I do, but it's uh, as good as useless uh, if no one knows about it and no one's buying it. So, <laughs> okay. Especially now in the age of ChatGPT, and I want to look into this further as well, is you can use ChatGPT to craft a story, but then still deliver it orally, right? What you said there, just send a short video with you that shows you the human delivering that story. That's what you say. This is these are then the powerful salespeople. That salesperson that uses storytelling uses ChatGPT to refine that story, but then delivers it still orally. That's boom. That's a perfect mix. Then a wonderful resource that I find very helpful is uh, writing little screenplays that tell a story into the form of a dialogue between uh, a CEO and the CFO, or the sales manager and a rep or a rep and a customer. And that's really good fun. And uh, ChatGPT does that quite well. The first one uh, that I ever did uh, was uh, doing a sales report for a salesperson who managed to make a massive sale, scalp the customer, and they had to report it in the manner of an Assyrian king reporting a victory. And it was hilariously funny. But uh, you you can do it in the voice of actors. You can do it in the voice of political figures. And that's quite fun. So, if it, you know, if you want to pep up your material, then there's all sorts of ways that you can pepper it with uh, these wonderful nuances. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I'd be a million times more inclined to learn sales by, let's say, someone delivering it like Kevin Hart than just uh, the average sales trainer, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's really cool to play with the di- different characters that can bring it in because they are for a reason the most famous most memorable characters because they're so unique so if we can combine them that's powerful stuff okay i'm really curious about story as a leadership tool but in the context of distributed organization like an ecosystem because in environments like that which i think are going to become much much more prevalent because they build resilience and Certainly with the experience that we're having, we have the capacity of an enterprise without the ball aches uh, and the politics of uh, working for a corporate with uh, shareholders and whatever. And what I'm curious about is how one uses story to galvanize community around a particular purpose or common mission, mm-hmm. and then to maintain that energy. because. As communities come together, uh, they also start to break apart because the leader may be very good visionary, but shit at order and um, you know, frameworks. Uh, and the net result is the people who are looking for the order get very frustrated and leave and you start ending up with this churn. So I'm interested initially, how do you get people to follow? And then how do you maintain the momentum and the engagement using story? Let's start with the first one. On the first one, Let's just acknowledge people hate change, right? People hate change. 
And I include myself in that. That's why I probably hate it as well working in corporate, just because I hate when anyone comes to me and gives me new work or wants to change something. I don't like this. And that's most people. So what you want to have in these moments is a story that explains why change is needed and why change is not the worst thing in the world. And so when you can share there a personal story that explains why change is needed for that specific project that you want to push, it will immediately get more buy-in than just saying, ah, you should do this. These are the arguments because you need to create this emotional connection in there. That's why that I could give you an example if you want to. A very Please. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. Let me, let me try. It has been missing times. Let me give you a ridiculous example, a ridiculous example, but just to show you what type of things you could be telling. Let's say if I wanted to persuade you for change, I could say something like, um, you know what? A couple of months back, I went to the dentist and uh, very routine setting, very routine setting. And I, I go in there, I sit down on this chair, this dentist starts working, does all the things. 20 minutes later, she's done. Just normal thing, right? What she did, she added one millimeter to my teeth so that they are a little bit longer, that they look less transparent, but very routine setup. Once she's done, she's look, she looks at me and she asks, so how do you feel? Uh, I say, yeah, I feel good. This feels all right. Wait, why am I lisping? Why, why and she tells me, well, for it takes some time, right? Well, the same day, it feels alien, right? It feels like the worst thing on earth, man. I'm lifting, I'm spitting. It's <laughs> just like, oh man, why did I do this? I didn't even need this. Second day, I start to lisp a little less. It starts to feel a little bit more natural. Seven days later, I don't see a difference, right? These are my teeth. They're perfect. Not a problem at all. Well, this is what change is like, right? At first, yeah, it will feel very awkward. Second day, first week, we'll still feel a little bit awkward. But after some time, hey, actually, now I love my new teeth and you will do the same. Just as a stupid example, right? Of Now, you could, now I have a tooth story there, but maybe you have another personal story. Maybe you have a more business relevant story where you're like, something happened in business and you'll realize, man, we got to change this. This is not going as it should be. But just any story that explains the emotions behind it, they're already more powerful to create this momentum. So the headline in copy is often you know, something that I'll spend more than half of the time working on to get it right. How important is the opening in a story? And what makes for a really impactful story opening? Mm -hmm. There is one technique that is very popular, and that's almost like this anticipation hook. And you say something like, like Marcus, Three months ago, the craziest thing happened to me. You're never going to believe what happened to me. Or, man, I had this super interesting experience half a year back. Right, right now, I'm I'm already selling my uh, I'm selling my story before going into the story. That's one opportunity if you want to create extra engagement from the beginning. I'd say use it sparely and don't use it in every single story just because then everything is craziest or the worst or the biggest. But let's say if you want to make your point, you say, and the super interesting thing happened to me, I think you can learn a lot from that. Or then your audience will pay attention. Very interesting. Okay. Look, we, we've come more or less to time. Tell me this. What was your best mistake? If you look back over your career, what was the mistake that you at the time may not have appreciated quite so much, but uh, in hindsight, you learned the most from. I'd say best mistake, but back when I was an undergrad, I think the first presentation that I gave ever gave in my life, I walked in front of my entire classroom. And right when I wanted to start speaking, I had this complete, complete blackout. I look up, I look down, I look up, I look down, I see like just my heart pounding, right? Just going crazy. And after about owning this for, well, not owning, but like feeling the fear of this for about a minute, I just shut my laptop and rush out. <laughs> and that was so, so, so humiliating. I thought, man, I'm, 
I'm a fair, right? These people will think that uh, I don't cannot do anything that I'm probably here just because of, uh, then I paint myself into this university that I'm worthless, right? And that was so traumatizing to me that I thought, man, Philip, you got to change that, right? This is bad. You got to change. You got to be more confident when it comes to public speaking. That just embarked this entire journey of public speaking, storytelling. And if it hadn't been for that, I would have never, never done that. Well, now, is it a good thing? Maybe I would have been somewhere completely on a different spot. But I think because of that, that has given me so much drive to be better in the stuff that I am today. So that sounds to me like that might have been the seed towards you becoming somebody who goes out and seeks constructive embarrassment moments. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so constructive embarrassment, it's when you bring yourself on purpose in embarrassing situations. Now, I know you may wonder, why on earth would I do this, right? I, I want to avoid this as much as possible. Well, the moment you learn to deal with judgment of this specific moment, you can deal with feelings of judgments, feelings of shame, and when it matters. And let me give you a specific example. Example, let's say you go out in the street the next person that comes along and you ask the person, excuse me, could I give you a hug or high five? Or you go to the Starbucks and lie down on the floor unsolicited, just because you like to. Now, there are a million options to embarrass yourself. Everything that feels a little bit cringy where you're like, oh man, this is, this is not cool. I don't want to do this. Well, that's a good opportunity to embarrass yourself. And now why does it matter so much for anyone, but also in sales? Well, think about how much we're holding ourselves back because of the, f- the fear of judgment. Because we think another person perceives me in a certain way. Every time, let's say, especially for sales conversation, we're in our head, we think like, oh, what happens here? Um, what should I say next? What if you could just be in the moment right now and just listen to the other person with 100% without feeling like, ah, oh, I have to do this, I have to do this. Or what if you could give that presentation without worrying what other people think and just be there, own that presentation? Well, you do a million times better job, right? And so constructive embarrassment is just preparing you to be completely yourself without caring too much what other people think. Right. So effectively, what you're doing is you're conditioning yourself to let go of the attachment uh, to other people's opinion or judgment and approval so that when you do need to make a difficult decision where you are probably going to have to make a choice between two people that you care about or uh, situations that uh, may have uh, deep personal ramifications, you can make the decision rationally. Because what you're doing is you're training your amygdala not to fire off in those conditions. Because in sales or management or leadership or parenting and uh, marriage, pretty much everywhere, uh, your amygdala firing off is a big fucking no-no because you're going to freeze. Well, in a sales environment, you paralyzing is probably not the uh, sign of great confidence. So if you'd lack confidence, why would your buyer have any confidence in you? Flee. Well, running away from your buyer and avoiding them is probably not a good thing. And them running away from you, really not very good. And fight, you're probably going to end up losing that one because all they have to do is say no. And then there's flocking, which means that they'll go and look for solace among other people. Well, this, I think, is a really powerful opportunity because when people have doubt, uncertainty, their default setting is to go to the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can remove risk or perceived risk in the buyer's mind, they're very likely to buy from you. As long as you're offering something that's timely, relevant, valuable, and affordable, (laughs) if you eliminate risk, then there is no resistance because that is the single biggest competitor that you have. Because 60% of deals go to the status quo and half of those are caused by the seller not recognizing that the customer is having doubts And what they fear is the uncertainty of the change because they're suffering from anticipated buyer's remorse. And in their head, they are telling stories. So I am really curious about this. And this is the last question on the interview, which is how do you use stories to eliminate the buyer's fears and to neutralize or bring down the trigger of their amygdala? Excellent question on this one. 
if you fear, hey, there is this one objection, one resistance that I'll get guaranteed, well, then it's maybe worth to say that in advance. You can say something like, oh, Marcus, I noticed that you're a little bit that reluctant on this one. Is it that maybe you don't have any budget for this right now? Am I, am I right here? So you try to find out what is the resistance. You let them confirm. Then you go into the story of another customer who had a similar experience. Then I can say, Marcus, this reminds me of a, another customer very close to you that I worked with two years back. He had a very similar issue. Would it be helpful if I shared how he got over that? And then go into my story. So I use a story of another customer who had a similar problem, but then where it turned out all fine, where they were extremely happy to have moved forward. By telling that story already in advance, you can eliminate that doubt, that resistance before it even comes up. Very interesting. Okay. So, Philip, tell me this. How can people get hold of you? So the first thing, if it comes out in mid-March, I'll be publishing my new book on story selling. The book is called The Story Selling Method. And so if you want to learn more about storytelling and go deeper in all the nuggets that I shared today, The Story Selling Method will, is an extremely practical resource to help you with that. That's one. The second, hit me up on LinkedIn, Philip Hum, H-U-M-M. Say hi, send me connection requests. And be done. Philip with two Ps. Yes, one L, two Ps. And Hum, H-U-M-M. I'd love to be in touch with all of your listeners. I think they're probably, everyone is awesome. So please send me a connection request. And then the, um, that's pretty much it. If you want to check out the book on my website, storyselling.in, and you can check out the book there straight away with that. And if not, we're also giving workshops on story selling. So if that's anything relevant, hit me up. Excellent. Philip Hum, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please do like, comment, share, subscribe. And uh, if you fancy it, go to your favorite podcast platform and leave an honest review. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, there's links in the blurb. But if you're a seller who's principled and you find yourself walking a tightrope between doing what's best for your customer, keeping your job and being successful, and keeping your bosses off your back and fitting in, then drop me a line and let's have a chat about what you want to do in your career and what you want it to give you in life. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.